Well, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 1? We are currently doing a study here at Calvary on Sunday mornings in the book of Joshua, looking at it as an instruction manual on victorious Christian living. You say, well, wait a minute. I thought that was an historical book. Yes, it is. But Paul said in Romans 15, verse 4, that the things in the Old Testament were written for our learning. And that God speaks to us through types, shadows, and pictures, through various people and places and, and the things that happen in the Old Testament, and primarily through a nation that he chose called Israel, to use all these things as object lessons for us to learn from, to apply into our Christian lives. And so we see that the book of Joshua, I believe, is really for Christians as God has given it to us as an instruction manual for living the victorious Christian life. And we said the book falls into three main divisions. The first one is entering the land, chapters 1 through 5. The second is conquering the land, chapters 6 through 21. And then keeping the land, chapter 22 through 24. And so obviously we are in that first part, chapters 1 through 5, where the theme is entering into the land. Now the land, as we've already pointed out, represents the life of the Spirit. Canaan, the promised land, represents the life of the Spirit, that place of blessing and fruitfulness and victory that God wanted to lead His people into ever since He led them out of Egypt. They had a 40-year detour in the wilderness because they would not trust in the promises of God. They would not trust in the power of God to do what He had promised. And so, because of their unbelief, the older generation, 20 and above, died in the wilderness. And then that younger generation was led in. And so we've already looked at, in this opening section, we've looked at the, the person of victory in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Remember, Moses could not lead them into the promised land. Moses represents the law. The law can never lead us into the life of the Spirit. The law can never give us victory. Uh, it can never give us rest from our works because the law is all about works. And so the law could not lead us into the promised land of our Christian faith, the life of the Spirit, even as Moses, the lawgiver, could not lead the children of Israel into the promised land. And so it says in chapter 1, verse 1, I believe, that when Moses died, God said to Joshua, now come, take my people into this, this land that I promised them. Joshua, of course, represents Jesus. In fact, the name Joshua is the same as the name Jesus. They're the same name. And so we see that the law came through Moses, John 1.17 tells us, but grace and truth came through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we saw the person of victory. That's Jesus, of course. And then we saw the promise of victory in verses 3 through 5, where God promised to give them victory. He promised to give them this good land. He said, every place where the sole of your foot shall step on this land I have given it to you. But you've got to walk throughout the length, the breadth of this land. You've got to conquer it by faith. It's yours, but it's not automatic. Our promised land are the great and precious promises God has given to us. Those that Peter talked about. In the New Testament, the Lord has given to His people many great and precious promises. They're ours, but not automatically. We have to go in, you might say, and possess them by faith. We have to stand on those promises, even as they had to put the sole of their foot on every piece of land that they claimed and conquered. 
And so we looked at that a little bit, and we'll be looking at that theme throughout this study as we go through the book of Joshua. So we've looked at the person of victory, the promise of victory. That then brought us to the power for victory in verses 5 through 9. And we got into the first part of this last time, so let me review just a little bit. Very simple. The power for victory is simply twofold. Believe that God is with you, obey what God has said. Believe that God is with you and obey what God has said. We looked at the first one. Believe that God is with you. Verse 5, God said to Joshua, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Listen, I will not leave you nor forsake you. Yeah, but that's Old Testament stuff. <laughs> no, Hebrews 13:5 is the same promise repeated. He will never leave you nor forsake you. You know why that's important? Because victory would be absolutely impossible without God's presence. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do what? Most things? A couple things? No thing. Nothing. Right? We need God's presence. The battle belongs to who? The Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, Paul said, but against principalities, powers, the forces of wickedness, in the spirit realm. See, it's all about God's strength. It's all about God's presence. Now, with the promise of victory, as we said, it has inherent within it the promise of conflict. You can't have victory. You know, when God says, I'm giving you victory, what that implies there's going to be some conflict somewhere. There's warfare somewhere. Because victory implies conflict. In fact, as God told Joshua four times in verses 6, 7, 9, and then verse 18, God said to Joshua, Be strong and of good courage. Why? Well, again, obviously Joshua was afraid. Why was Joshua afraid? Well, as we said last time, he was afraid for two reasons. First of all, he had some big shoes to fill. Secondly, he had some big enemies to face. He had some big shoes to fill. How would you like to take over for Moses? Okay. How would you like to take over for that kind of a guy? I mean, you know, I mean, the Jews thought that Moses was about the greatest prophet in the entire history of their nation and the world. You know, I mean, like somebody saying uh, to me, you know, if I lived uh, 150 years ago, um, Spurgeon is ready to retire. We'd like you to take over for him. Yeah, right. Okay. I mean, there are some people that they're, they're so big, they're bigger than life. How are you going to take over for a guy like Moses? And I'm sure Joshua was just afraid that he would never be able to measure up to the kind of leader Moses had been. But you know what? That wasn't important. Because God calls us, he makes us different people, gives us different gifts. Uh, we don't have to be exactly alike. I mean, God doesn't make cookie-cutter Christians. But the same spirit that works in one person's life works in all of our lives. The, the issue is never the instrument, it's the one who uses the instrument, right? As we said last time, we have a tendency... To put people on pedestals that God has used. We have a tendency to exalt men that God has used instead of the God who uses men. That's our problem. And I think Joshua fell into that to a certain degree. He was so, he was so intimidated by Moses, the kind of leader he had been, that he didn't want the job. And God is saying, Joshua, it was never about Moses. It was always about me. I'm with you. That's all you need to know. Just know that I'm with you. That's what God wants all of us to know. So he had some big shoes to fill, but he was also scared because he had some big enemies to face. Joshua was going to face literal giants in the land of Canaan. We're going to show you scripture verses that talk about these literal giants. Uh, Goliath uh, was one of the descendants of some of the very large people in this area. 
And Joshua was going up against these gigantic warriors. Goliath was nine and a half feet tall. I mean, these, these people had a reputation as being men of war, fierce fighting men for centuries. They lived in fortified cities. They drove iron chariots. They were pretty intimidating guys. And so Joshua was going to have to lead the nation against these giants. And he was afraid. But God says, Joshua, be strong and courageous, for I am with you. I have promised to give you victory. I'm going to do it. And again, folks, the thing about courage, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the control of fear. When God told Joshua, do not be afraid, for I'm with you. I don't think God was saying, be a robot, drain yourself of all emotion. That's unrealistic. What he was saying is, Joshua, don't let your fear control you. Let your faith in me be stronger than your fear of the situation. As I told you guys, when I first got saved and then God finally called me into ministry, uh, I had this incredible fear of public speaking. That was my phobia. That was the thing that I couldn't even give reports in class. Uh, in front of the class, I would be so uh, full of so much anxiety and, and all. And, and when God called me into ministry, that was the path he was leading me on. Just like he was calling Joshua to be the leader of bringing God's people into Canaan. That was his path. My path was to be in ministry. That's what God had called me to. But standing in front of me was a giant. A giant that said, you can't go this way. You don't know how to speak in front of people. You're terrified of public speaking. Now, I could have looked at that giant and said, Lord, I can't do it. And I, I could have run and done something else, and God would have blessed it. It would never have been, though, his best will for my life. I don't know what your giant is. I don't know what's standing in front of you today that wants to keep you from doing all that God's called you to do. You have two choices, though, whatever that giant is. You can either look at the size of the giant, the enemy, and turn away and not do exactly what God is calling you to do. Or you can look at that giant and go, Lord, this thing is big, but you're bigger. You're a giant killer. And if you're calling me to this ministry or to do this thing, you're going to give me the grace. You're going to bring this giant down. And you're going to give me grace, Lord, to go forward in the path that you have set before me. So the power for victory is simply believe that God is with you. Secondly, obey what God has said. Let's read verses 6 through 9 now as we pick it up. This is where we left off. Last time, we'll start with verse 6, where God said to Joshua, Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In these verses, God lays out to Joshua, and really to all of us, four conditions for victory. They're found in verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8. And they're sandwiched between two promises of victory, found in verse 6. Then the latter part of verse 8 and through verse 9. But these four conditions for victory are conditional promises. What is a conditional promise? It's simply where God says, if you will do this, then I will respond and do this. If you don't do this, then, you know what? 
I'm not going to do what I promised you I was going to do. And so God lays out here four commands for all of us to do. If we want to experience victory in our lives, these are conditional, but they are a sure thing. If you'll do what God has told you to do, I guarantee you, God will be faithful in doing what he has promised to do for you. The four commands, Joshua was to know God's word, beginning of verse 7. Joshua was to talk about God's word, beginning of verse 8. Joshua was to meditate on God's word, middle part of verse 8. Joshua was to obey God's word, middle of verse 7, and then the end of verse 8. We'll look at these as we go. But first of all, Joshua was to know God's word. We read in verse 7, Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. If Joshua was going to be strong and courageous and obey all the law, which just represents the word of God, if the law of Moses was to be Joshua's guide, as these verses clearly indicate it was supposed to be, then Joshua was going to have to know the law of God, right? And of course, that implies he was going to have to read it, and study it, and memorize it. I mean, very simple, right? And this is without a doubt the greatest principle for victorious Christian living you'll find anywhere in the Bible. Reading, studying, and memorizing God's Word. I mean, folks, this is Christianity 101. This is not deeply profound stuff. You know, it's not like when I tell you this thing now, to be victorious, you got to know God's Word. you got to read it. Oh, wow, is this guy deep. So I'm so thankful we have this guy as our pastor. Where does he come up with these things? I mean, you know. No, this is, you know, Christians are defeated. Christians are not enjoying all that God has promised them, not because they've missed some profound truth buried somewhere that nobody else has really discovered. We mess up because we're not applying the foundational stuff. That's what it is. Peter said, I know you know this stuff. I just want to bring it to your remembrance. That's very good because we forget uh, quite easily. But there is no such thing as victorious Christian living. There's no such thing as a victorious Christian who is not consistently in the word. Just like there's no such thing as a successful church that is not faithfully teaching its members the Word of God. Notice, I didn't say there's no such thing as a big church that's not teaching the Bible. I said there is no such thing as a successful church in the eyes of God that is not teaching their people faithfully God's Word. Case in point, in Revelation chapter 3 we read about several churches, but two I want to point out. Church of Laodicea, very big, very wealthy church. But they were not faithful to the Lord. In fact, Jesus Christ was knocking to get into the church. He wasn't even really there. Why? Because his word was not being taught. I don't know what they were doing, but they weren't teaching the word of God. This is always something that just really blows my mind. We, this weekend, we spent time with pastors and wives and leaders from all over Illinois, Calvary guys and gals, Friday night, Saturday. And we at one point got around in a circle, the senior pastors and wives, and some of the guys were talking about how God led them into areas where there was no real Bible study going on. And so they, would, would, they, they started Bible studies, and one of the guys was saying he was, uh, had a group of about 30 people, and he was teaching from the Word out of Ephesians 2, talking about how salvation is by grace through faith. And as he was teaching this, an older woman turned to her daughter and said, why didn't anyone ever tell me it was by grace? And she had been going to church for years in that area. One guy, Calvary guy, 
lived in an area where there was a congregational church that had been there for 175 years. And there were still some people alive that had been there that long, I think. <laughs> the church was totally dead. And they needed a pastor, so they heard about this guy and said, will you come and be our pastor? He said, Lord, show me my sin. I, I, I don't, what, what have I done wrong that you would lay this on me, Lord? These people, they're, they're dead over there. God says, go over there. You go and do that. So they started teaching the Word of God, and some new families started coming, and a couple of families on fire now. And one of the gals who had been in that church for 50 years, in her early 90s, you know what she said to him the other day? She said, I read the New Testament. I wanted to see what everyone was talking about. First time in 50 years she had ever read the New Testament. She had been going to that church the whole time. What are these churches doing? Folks, there is a famine in the land, but it's not for bread. It's from hearing the word of God. Not that people are not proclaiming it, but it's becoming farther and farther, fewer between, right? Laodicea was a large, prosperous, growing church that was dead. God also talked about another church, Philadelphia in Revelation 20. Uh, Revelation 3. He said, you're just a little fellowship. you got just a little strength. But you've kept my word and have not denied my name. See, that was a successful church in God's eyes. You know, human beings, we tend to look at size and prosperity to determine if a church is successful. God never looks at those things. He always looks at the heart. He always wants to know where people... It's not the size of the church, it's the depth of the church. Philadelphia was a small church, but they loved God's word. They obeyed it faithfully, and they honored the Lord Jesus Christ. God said, you are a successful church. You know, when a pastor of one of the large and well-known churches in the area was asked by his people one time why they did nothing but topical studies from various best-selling books, and they didn't study the books of the Bible, here's what he said. We're in a different phase of our church right now. We're in a different phase of our church right now. We're not studying the Bible. We're studying the latest bestseller. Let me say this to you folks. The only phase a church can be in that's not teaching the word is the declining phase. I don't care how big the church is. Yes, but they're growing. Cemeteries grow. That doesn't mean there's life there. Look, the word of God alone is living and powerful. And Paul said it's able to build us up. And give us victory. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 2. Listen to what Paul said. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. He said, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men. This is just the opposite of what we're seeing today. A lot of churches are not welcoming the word of God. But they are welcoming the word of men. Give them the latest pop psychology, they love it. You give them solid doctrine from the Word of God, and they can't handle it. Paul said, man, I'm so thankful for you guys. When I came, boy, you were so hungry to hear what we had to say. You knew it was from God. You knew it wasn't the Word of men. But as in truth, it was the Word of God, which, listen, also effectively works in you who believe. Only the Word of God is living and powerful. Only the Word of God can change a life. Nothing else, the wisdom of this world, nothing can change a life 
like the Word of God, and only the Word of God, in the power of the Spirit. That's why the devil wants to keep people from the Bible. That's why for so many centuries people lived in the darkness because they couldn't read the Scriptures. As long as the church kept people ignorant and said, look, we'll tell you what the Bible is saying. It wasn't until people started to learn how to read and they were able to get their hands on even pages of Scripture that they began to understand what God really said. And guess what? The truth set them free from the darkness. And you had the Reformation in the church. Nothing else will change your life. Because nothing else contains life but God's Word. How about 2 Timothy 3? And again, you know this passage. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. Listen to what Paul said to a young pastor named Timothy. He said, Timothy, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, or the woman of God, of course, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Notice, he talks about doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction. Doctrine tells us what is right. Reproof tells us what is not right. Correction tells us how to get right. And instruction tells us how to stay right. But it all comes from knowing God's word, which Paul said in Ephesians 6 was called the sword of the spirit. The word of God is the sword of the spirit. You see, the only way Joshua was going to be strong and courageous was as God had said in Zechariah 4, verse 6, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's the only way we can serve God and know anything of victory, know anything of courage and strength, is because God's spirit works in us and he gives us that strength and so on. You cannot divorce the word of God from the power of the spirit. They're together. It is the word of God, the sword of the spirit. When we studied Ephesians 5, we got to verse 18. Paul said, and here's the way it comes through in the Greek. He said, be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Then he went on and said, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Kids, obey your parents. Servants, obey your masters, right? Then you come to Colossians, which is a book that very much parallels Ephesians. And in chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Kids, obey your parents. Servants, obey your masters. What is Paul saying? He is saying to be filled with the Spirit constantly is to constantly be dwelling in the Word of God, filling your mind with God's Word. They're the same. There's no such thing as saying, Lord, give me power. Give me power, Lord. I want more power in my life to be victorious. God says, are you in my Word? Well, I don't really have the time, Lord. Then there's no power. Until you get in my word, there'll be no power because they go together. The word is powerful. It's living and powerful. You can't have power without being in the word. And so as we stay in fellowship with the Lord, abiding in Jesus through his word, we will enjoy a constant flow of the Holy Spirit in and through our lives. Very simple, very basic. Number two, Joshua was not just to know the word of God. Joshua was to talk about God's word. He said in verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. God's word was not to depart from Joshua's mouth. He was to talk about it constantly. In fact, this was something that God had said through Moses earlier in Deuteronomy 
about how families were to function. Remember what God said in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7 to parents? He said, you shall diligently teach these precepts to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. God says, as a family, you're to constantly be talking with each other about my word. God is telling Joshua and all of us that a victorious life involves, in part, talking to others about the word of God. Why? Well, first of all, the more you talk about God's word, the more you're going to be reminding yourself of God's character, right? God's promises. You're going to be reminding yourself of the truth in God's word. I mean, the more you repeat things, right, the more you learn them and remember them, don't you? The problem is today, a lot of Christians don't talk about the word to others they meet. In fact, the second thing I want to tell you is that there's something powerful about sharing God's word with the people you talk to. Unbelievers and believers, right? How many times has somebody been talking to you about the Word of God and they just said something in passing and zing, the Holy Spirit chest, that was what you needed. Just cut you right there to the heart. Whoa! And they weren't even trying to minister to you in that area. They didn't know what you were going through. But God did. See, it's good to talk to each other. There's something powerful about that. Not just for others, but even for ourselves. The reason why a lot of Christians don't talk about God's Word to people is because guess what? They're not reading the Word. They're not in the Word. They have nothing to say. They have nothing to talk about. That's the tragedy. Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there your what is going to be. Your heart. Whatever you value, whatever you love, that's where your heart is going to be. When you fell in love with your spouse, when you first met and fell in love, they had your heart. That's all you did was talk about them. Some of us got a little tired of hearing about it. But, you know, talking about this person, talking about this person. Writing their name if you're a kid, like in high school or junior high. Writing their name on your hand and on your notebooks and everywhere you could write it, you know. And that's all you wanted to do was talk about this person because you were in love. When you first fell in love with Jesus, that's how you were. You always wanted to talk about Jesus to everybody you came in contact with. And they weren't always real happy about it if they were unbelievers. But you couldn't contain yourself. Nobody had to tell you, talk about the Lord more. Talk about the Word. That's all you could talk about. But sometimes we cool. Sometimes we get comfortable. Sometimes we don't keep stoking the fires, and so they begin to go out. And we turn to other things. And we don't have anything to talk about. You know, I was telling the first service when I was reading a book uh, about a year ago about um, our nation and its early days and how godly people were. You know, when Christians would run into each other in the street, you know that what the common greeting was back then? Here's the common greeting they said. It just really stuck with me. What has God taught you this week? What has God taught you this week? And they always said stuff to share because God was always on their minds. They run into a Christian today and say, what has God taught you this week? Well, you weirdo, get back. Hey, that's my private stuff, man. I don't want... We get defensive. Why? Because we don't have anything to talk about. God isn't teaching us anything. You know what? We're not in the Word. We're not in the... We find it much more easy to talk about sports or some other subject because often Christians are just not in the Word. They have nothing to talk about. And finally, it's good to constantly use your mouth to talk about the Word of God. You know why? Because if the Word of God, the Word of God is constantly flowing through your lips, guess what won't be coming out of your mouth? Gossip, slander, murmuring, and complaining. All the stuff the devil wants to use your mouth and tongue for. The best 
defense against the enemy in this area is a good, strong offense. If you fill your mouth with God's word and keep talking about it everywhere you go, guess what? You won't have time to talk about the stuff Satan wants you to talk about. So you need to talk about God's word. Thirdly, Joshua was to meditate on God's word. He said in verse 8 again, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. Now, folks, listen to me, because some of you are new, and I need to just say this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, because we've talked about this. When the Bible talks about meditating on God's word, listen, it isn't talking about the Eastern practice of meditation. We're in in TM, or Transcendental Meditation, and other forms of Eastern meditation. They teach that you cannot really connect with the spirit realm unless you empty your mind of all thoughts. And the only way to do that is to use a mantra, which consists of a phrase or even a single word that you repeat over and over and over again. Sometimes it's a breathing technique that you can use. And as you do these things over and over repetitively, you begin to enter into an altered state of consciousness, which they call the silence. And once you enter into this silence where your mind is completely drained of all thought, then God, if you're a Christian, because this stuff has come into the church, I believe it's part of the great apostasy that Paul warned us against in 2 Thessalonians 2. This is doctrines of demons, Eastern mysticism, that's been Christianized, brought into the church under the guise of biblical Christianity. And when you challenge Christians who are involved in this contemplative prayer, as they call it, or spiritual formation, where they're saying, well, I don't use uh, any of those um, Hindu names of the gods to repeat. I use Jesus. Or I say Abba. So it's okay, right? No, it's not okay. Where in the Bible does it ever say that meditation, we need to empty our minds of all thought. We need to work ourselves into an altered state of consciousness where now we are finally open to the voice of God, which one of the authors who promotes this kind of thing says, but you know what, not all the spirits out there are good, so you have to practice prayers of protection before you enter into the silence. Where in the scriptures does it say that? And when you challenge them, well, where in the Bible is it taught? Well, right here, Joshua 1.8, and they give you all the verses where the Bible talks about meditating on God's word. See, that is not the same thing. It is not the same, the same word is used, But it's not the same definition. Biblical meditation is not Eastern meditation. Never are we told in the scriptures to empty our minds, to go into an altered state of consciousness, to connect with God. That's not biblical meditation. What is it? The Hebrew word is twofold. The word used here for meditation is a Hebrew word that has a twofold meaning. The first is to ponder, to chew on, to mull over, to think about. When God says, Meditate on my word. He is saying, ponder it. Think on it. Chew on it, as we would say. In fact, that's why some of the translations have said the word could actually be translated to chew the cud. Because the idea was you're chewing on this passage over and over, extracting all the nutrients, right? Nothing mystical about it in that way. You're just thinking about, what does this passage say about God's character, God's love? My responsibility as a believer, you know, the promises of God and so on. It's just, I'm just digging into it. I'm just really going over it. Now, the other meaning of this Hebrew word means to mutter. And, you know, Warren Worsby said, he's an author and, and all, he said, it comes from the practice of the Jews where they read the scriptures aloud. This is what Jewish, they muttered the scriptures. They read them aloud. He said, numerous conferences, I have often told pastors and seminary students, if you don't talk to your Bible, your Bible is not likely to talk to you. 
Uh, we're not going to get weird with that, but I'm just saying, you know. <laughs> you know, the idea is, okay, you, re- you read a passage a couple of times, three times, then you go to work. And as you're driving to work, you're repeating the passage out loud. You're memorizing it, basically, but you're meditating on it, too. So you're speaking it forth, you're muttering it. And as you're muttering it, you're thinking, Lord, how does this apply in my life? What are the, some of the things that, you know, you know, what is it about this verse that, you know, what you want me to learn? And as you're meditating on it, all of a sudden God begins to give you all kinds of insights, all kinds of illustrations, other passages that dovetail with it. I can't tell you how beneficial this has been in my teaching ministry. After I've done all my work and studying the commentaries and putting the message together, then I always go somewhere and I meditate on it. Meditate point by point. I cannot tell you some of the best things that I, that I wind up presenting are things that God just gave me directly as I was meditating on the passage. Incredible things. This is something that is a lost art among Christians today. But listen to what David said. and Boy, this is just two of hundreds of passages we could look at. The Psalm 1 verse 2. David said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the, in the counsel of the ungodly, nor uh, stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, right? But his delight is in the law of the Lord, the word of God. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. A tree that has a constant source of water and its leaves shall never wither. It will bring forth fruit consistently in its season. In other words, you'll never dry out if you sink your roots deep into God's word. Ever. But also in Psalm 119 verse 97, David said, Oh, how I love your law. Oh, how I love your word, Lord. It is my meditation all the day. And yet that's not what's going on in our day. One author said this, and I quote, Unfortunately, this is a discipline far too few Christians today know anything about. We live in an age of superficiality and spoon-feeding. Consequently, many of today's Christians think that all a person has to do to be successful in the Christian life is to go to church, pay passing attention to the sermon, have a few Christian friends, and go on about their business as, as they would without these other elements. That is why Christians make so little difference in our society today. They think like the world, and as a result, they act like the world. Their conduct and the conduct of pagans, apart from the grosser sins, is indistinguishable. What is missing? The missing element is deep, genuine, and persistent meditation on the Word of God. It is only as the Word of God gets into our minds and begins to become part of our normal day-to-day reasoning and thinking that we begin to act differently and thereby make a difference, end quote. And I know, folks, we're all busy. And I know meditating on Scripture takes some time. But as the old saying goes, you're going to only get out of your Christianity what you put in. To use a biblical metaphor, Paul said, if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. How much time and effort you put into something will determine how much you get out of it. And so this, to me, is just such a vital area that many Christians are not doing. So God says Joshua was to know the word. Joshua was to speak the word. He was to meditate on the word. And finally, Joshua was to obey God's word. He said here, In verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, listen, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. 
Look, it's all or nothing when it comes to obedience. It's really all or nothing. We cannot pick and choose what we're going to obey and what we're not going to obey from God's word and say, well, even though I'm not obeying some of it, I'm obeying most of it. That counts and that's okay, right? Well, it's interesting because in James chapter 2, verse 10, James said, if you keep the whole law but violate one part of it, you're a lawbreaker and you need to be punished, just like in our society. If you keep all the laws of our society but break one, you can't say to the judge, but I kept most of them. No, the judge says, you need to obey all of them. If you break any of them, you need to be punished. You're a lawbreaker. It's like God said to Samuel, the Old Testament prophet. He said at one point, go to Saul, King Saul. Tell him that he is to wipe out the Amalekites. You see, what happened was when Israel came out of Egypt, two million people, two and a half million people trudging through the desert. The Amalekites ambushed the very rear of the line, the very back of the line. Who was back there? The elderly, the handicapped, the infirmed, the lame. God says that was such a reprehensible thing they did that they pounced on those who could least defend themselves. When you get in the land, there's coming a day I'm going to tell you to wipe them out. That day had come. God says, tell Saul to wipe out the Amalekites, everybody, even their animals. So Saul goes and he comes back and guess what? He's got King Agag with him. Didn't wipe him out. He's got the choices of the animals. And he's coming back, feeling pretty good about himself. God says, go to Saul and confront him. Samuel goes over to Saul and Saul's all happy. Oh, blessed are you of the Lord. Look it. We have obeyed all that the Lord has said. And Samuel said, uh, if you've obeyed all the Lord has said, why do I hear all these animal noises in my ears? You know, you've obeyed all the Lord has said. Well, Saul said, well, we have obeyed most of it, but we kept the best animals to sacrifice to God. Good idea, right? Wrong. Samuel said, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen to the voice of God better than any offering of the fat of animals. Because rebellion, Saul, is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have done this, you will be rejected now as king over Israel. See, God didn't count Saul's partial obedience as anything but disobedience. What am I saying? That we're supposed to be perfect? We'll never be perfect this side of heaven. But that doesn't ever give us the right to say, I don't intend to try to do all God has told me. Now, I can intend to obey God and everything he said and still mess up. That's different from saying, well, I agree with most of what God said, but you know what? I don't like these couple of places over here in the Word, so you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'll keep most of it, though. That's good enough, right? God says, no. Disobedience to anything I've said is to disobey everything I've said. You've got to do all what God has said. And this is was something that God reinforced through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 5, verse 32. He said, therefore, you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Well, that's what God said here in these verses in Joshua 1. That Joshua was to obey all that God said, not turning to the right hand or left. Not deviating at all from what God had said. Deuteronomy 4, verse 2. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take away from it. I love that. People are adding and subtracting from God's word all the time. That you may keep the commandments of the Lord which 
your God has commanded you. Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 and 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today, for your good. God says, I want to bless you, but you have to obey me. Now the result, and we're done. But just quickly, the result. After God laid out the four commands that Joshua was to obey concerning the word, then he said in verse, the latter part of verse 8, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. You see, these are conditional promises. God says, if you are faithful to doing what I've told you to do, then I will do what I've told you I was going to do. Then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. If we walk with God in obedience, then he has promised to walk with us in blessing. He will give us the strength, the courage in doing all that he's called us to do and the success that will go along with it. I like what uh, J. Vernon McGee said, just simple. I love his kind of woodsy, down-home kind of logic. He said, friend, if you don't have victory through Jesus Christ, I can tell you why. It's because you're, not ne- it's because you're neglecting reading and obeying your Bible. Read your Bible as you ought and obey it. And you will be able to live a life of victory. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, had written in the front of his Bible, on the flyleaf, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. End quote. It's as simple as that. Look, there are no shortcuts to the victorious life. There are no magic formulas for spiritual success. I mean, you can't become more than a conqueror in a weekend seminar on spiritual warfare. There's no shortcut. So I've looked in the course of my Christian, if anybody looks for a shortcut to get all that God wants to give as quickly as possible as me. And I'm going to tell you something. There's no shortcut in the Bible for victory. I mean, we often look for the formulas, don't we? And there are ministries and teachers that will tell you they have the secret. Now, I've named this study the secret of success. But that's tongue in cheek. There's no secret to success. There's no secret to success. I put it that way because people are always looking for secrets. Fine, I'll give you a secret. Here it is. Know your Bible. Study your Bible. Memorize your... Yeah, that's the secret. Well, that's not a secret. You got it. See, we often look for formulas and secrets and shortcuts that will bring us overnight victory. But God has purposely said that he has designed victory to be a gradual process. Remember we said that? Exodus 23, God says, look... When I bring you into the land, I'm not going to drive the enemy out from before you in one year. But little by little, I'm going to drive the enemy out until you are strong enough to to possess all the land. God has designed victory in the Christian life to be a gradual process. Why? Because it keeps us on our knees. It keeps us close to him. It keeps us depending on him. He wants that growth to be gradual. If he gave us victory over all the enemies day one, we'd never approach him. We'd never pray to him. We would never seek him. It would be a disaster. So God in his wisdom has said, look, victory in the Christian life is guaranteed, but it's gradual as well. Walk with me every day. There's no shortcuts to spiritual power and victory, God is saying. You've got to read your Bible. You've got to study. You've got to memorize it. You've got to meditate on it. I hope you guys are 
memorizing the Bible verses every week. This year, we really purposed in our hearts that we were going to learn 52 Bible verses, one a week. The one for this week in your bulletin, Isaiah 41, verse 10, that is an awesome scripture. Please memorize these scriptures. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to call on you guys. No, I'm not going to. You, you wouldn't come to church. I know that. I'd be talking to the sound team. And, you know, I mean, no, we're not going to do that. I mean, you're, you're adults. I'm not going to treat you like kids. This is for your benefit. You've got to want to do this. Nobody can beat you over the head and twist your arm. No, this is something you have to want to do. And I hope you want to do it. Yeah, there's kids in Awana that learn nine verses a week. I'm asking you to learn one. This is not hard. Just take some time and write it on a little card and, 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 and take it with you and just read it throughout the day and memorize it. And while you're speaking it out, you're, you're meditating on it too. And it's going to be an incredible process. Let me tell you something. This is the difference between victory and defeat. This is the difference between maturity and immaturity, between the Word of God becoming Meat in your life or remaining milk. It's all up to you guys. It's all up to you. How hungry are you for the word? And you say, well, I'm not as hungry as I want to be. That's honest and I appreciate that. You come to God and you say, Lord, give me a hunger for the word. An insatiable hunger. Father, I want to, I want to be like David. I want to wake up in the middle of the night and be thinking on your word. First thing I do when I wake up, I want to run to the word. I want to open it up. I want to find out what you, want to, what you have to say to me for today. Be people of the word. But as you read the word, know this. It's good to know the word of God. But the goal is to know the God of the word. Not to just fill your head with knowledge or even verses. Know the word of God. Read it to know the word of God, but ultimately to know the God of the word. That's the goal. Because victory is found in a person. We need to know him more. So may God give us grace as we continue through this book and glean some of these great principles for Christian living. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word. It is everything. You've given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, Jesus. But Jesus, the word is Jesus. And so, Lord, create within us an insatiable hunger for your word. Father, work in all of our hearts that we would desire to read it, listen to it, study it, memorize it, and meditate upon it. That, Lord, it might so saturate our lives that everywhere we go and everyone we come in contact, we want to share your word. Because we're just bubbling over with such love and joy. As you fill our heads with your word and our hearts with your spirit, fill our mouths with your praise of the wonderful things that you are teaching us, the wonderful promises that you're fulfilling because we are studying your word and doing all that you've written in it. We thank you, Lord. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.